Welcome to the Aurora Cornerstone Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We hope today's message is an encouragement to you. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13, we are talking in these hours of come to my table. It's an invitation that God extends to the family of God, to the body of Christ, to have, listen, to have relational impact one with another. I am meant to relationally uplift others. And I'm not referring to as a pastor, as a Christian. And you are too. So I want you to do something. I know I told you to look at for 1 Corinthians 13, but can you do this as well? Can you just take a look and see who's sitting beside you, maybe across the aisle? Just go ahead and take a look. Okay, see who's over there? The person you just looked at, that person also was meant to be relationally impactful for someone else. So although we are here together, many of us, some of us know others, many of us don't know everybody here. I would hazard to guess all of us don't know everybody here. And certainly online, right? You have people in contact and acquaintance with you. Saying that, we are meant to not live in isolation as Christians. We are meant to impact, in a good and positive way, others. So, we've been talking a lot about this. And I think this is really, to me, it's gained teeth in the last couple of months for me as I began to go into this study, come to my table. Because we have had a a very difficult couple of years. And we have to reinitiate some old habits that have been lost. What do they say? How long does it take to form a habit? Somebody know? How long? But six weeks or something? Yes. I've, I've heard six weeks, 40 days, whatever, to form a habit. Well, goodness, we've got some pretty deep habits that we have to reform some new habits. New habits of my place of having a positive impact on others' lives. And hopefully that's beyond just your husband and wife and your son and your daughter and your mother and a father. So hopefully that's true. But it should go beyond that. It should go be people that you are initiating relationship with. I'm encouraging to come again, invite you here on Sunday morning, 9 o'clock, uh, I'm not going to ask how many of you had a coffee, but I invite you. Lori and I, we used to have a coffee uh, some Sundays. If I wasn't singing, I, I can't. I was telling Pascal if I can't have a coffee and sing at the same time um, because it all comes out gargled. <clears throat> and you just, but anyway, having said that, uh, we would have it at home. But we've been doing it for the last three weeks. We just come here and we have a coffee here. Um, we had a, a frozen muffin this morning. And by design, a frozen muffin. I asked. We, somebody told me, he said, Pastor, I know you like everything frozen, except my coffee. And we actually have a frozen muffin if you'd like it. I go, sweet, I'll take it. So I had a frozen muffin this morning because I like frozen muffins. Don't ask me. It's a long story. Um, so I invite you. Join me at 9 o'clock. Join us at 9 o'clock. Uh, invite somebody. Maybe somebody you looked across the aisle and you don't know them very well or you don't know them at all. Why don't you just, if there's somebody maybe you uh, nodded at, I was going to shake shake hands, but that's kind of gone by the way. Um, You've nodded at, uh, why don't you say, hey, why don't you join, I'll I'll buy you a coffee and a frozen muffin. I'll buy you a coffee and a frozen muffin. 
9 o'clock in the morning. Great time to come and just have some fellowship. They're ready at 9 o'clock for about a few minutes before the service, then we close the cafe down, of course, afterward. Just a time of fellowship. I encourage, come to my table. Not just an invitation within the context of Cornerstone, but let's let it be an invitation. Let, let this grow. This congregation traditionally has been a very hospitable congregation. And I'm praying, Holy Spirit, fan the flames of hospitality again. That we would grow in hospitality one for another. So, so therefore, if someone comes and says, I don't know anybody, nobody reaches out, nobody's friendly. If that happens, may your response be one of two things. Invite them out to do something. Invite them out to 9 o'clock coffee. Hey, come on then. Let's join me at 9 o'clock coffee. We'll start there. Or maybe ask the question. Sometimes I ask the question, have, have you reached out to others? I've discovered that sometimes we're always waiting for somebody to reach out. Sometimes it's just a matter of, hi, my name is such and such. Um, uh, I, let me tell you a little bit about myself or ask a few questions about the person that you're talking to. Come to my table. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is a very popular chapter. It's called, what's it called? It's called the what chapter? The love chapter. It's the love chapter. And yes, I have used it at weddings. I've used it at weddings because it, it does apply. It's applicable. But it's more than weddings, way beyond the weddings. Chapter 13, if we, if we get it in its context, it starts off, it said, though you speak in tongues more than anyone else. Okay? Now, tongues is a gift of the Holy Spirit. It's available to every child of God to speak in tongues. It's an utterance that you have not rehearsed given by the Spirit, and it releases, it releases in your life a boldness and a, and, a, and an audacity and faith that you will be a stronger witness for God. It's just a, that's the outflow of tongues. But tongues is a prayer language in the Spirit. Paul says, although you might speak in tongues, he goes on, he says, you might be prophetically gifted. You might understand mysteries that other people don't understand. In other words, God is giving you the ability to maybe have a gifting of knowledge or the gift of wisdom, the spiritual gift of understanding, discernment, prophetic gift that you hear from God and you speak or you have a sense of what God is showing you. He says, even though you might have that, he says, you might have the gift of faith. That you're one of those people when somebody's saying, oh, this can't be done, in your mind you're going, oh, but with God all things are possible, Right? You just, you just believe because you've seen God at work. You have a gift of faith. And Bible says you can move all mountains. Now, it doesn't literally mean mountains. Mountains was an expression that it's like an immovable thing. And you think of the most immovable thing on this planet probably would be a mountain. The big impossibilities, you can believe God is bigger than even the biggest impossibilities on this earth. Even though you have the faith that you can move mountains... And then it says, maybe you give to the poor. Okay, if you read through the first few verses, it's what it's talking about. So you're, you're generous. You are reaching out to the poor. You're reaching out to those who are disadvantaged, those who are going through reversals. Even though you do that, and you have not love, the rest is meaningless. Well, if that's the case, now I would think that, I, I think tongues is important, I think God speaking through me to others is important. And I think faith is really important. Giving to the needy is really... Like, I think all those things are so, so important. But if I don't have love, it means that you can have love and it means you can't have love. 
It wouldn't say it if, you, if it wasn't possible to not have love. So he says, if you don't have love, the rest, well, tongues is noisy. Faith is not going to have impact. Your, your blessings to the poor will run limits. There will be all this stuff that will fall short, fall short, fall short if you don't have love. So love's really important. So then the question comes, if you were, if Paul was here and speaking to you this and you'd never read it before, you'd be hearing all that and you're saying, okay, so what do you mean when you say love? Well, Paul anticipated that because he then in the next four verses describes love, starting in verse four. So we're gonna pick it up in verse four and this is where the love chapter gets its name. Love. And then if you go right to the very end of the chapter, it says in all these, there's faith, there's hope, and there's love. We can't deny faith is really important. Without faith, you can't see God. You can't please God. And hope, if we don't have the assurance of our salvation, then we are to be pitied. Those are really, really important. But it says of faith and hope, the greatest of these is what? Love. We come back to love. So love is a is a big rock to go in. What is love? And Paul talks about love. So we're going to pick it up in verse 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. And I'm going to invite, can we all say it together with one voice out loud? Everybody together, let's read this together out loud. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Now, here's something fun. And I've done this. We're going to do it right now. We're going to do it at the end of the service again, too. Replace the word love with your name. Okay? So, we're going to try this. So, I, I'm going to be putting my name in, but don't use my name if that's not your name. Put your name in. So, I'll be saying, Wayne is patient. Wayne. Now, I'm going to say it really slow because some of you have four-syllable names. Okay, I know that. Wayne is one syllable, so it's really easy for me to rip through this. But for some of you, you've got to get your whole name in there. And I want you to get your whole name in there. So, I'm going to go slow and put your name, not, not your first, middle, Second, middle, and then the last name. Not the whole thing. Just give me your first name. Okay, ready? Ready? Put your name in. Ready? Don't put my name. I'm going to do mine. Ready? Here we go. Wayne is patient. Wayne is kind. Wayne does not envy. Wayne does not boast. Wayne is not proud. Wayne is not rude. Wayne is not self-seeking. Wayne is not easily angered. Wayne keeps no record of wrongs. Wayne does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Wayne always protects. Wayne always trusts. Wayne always hopes. Wayne always perseveres. You feel the weight of that? Feel the weight? Paul didn't give a one little liner to say, oh, well, here's what love, blah, 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 a few words. Paul realized, he, he's building on this. He hits chapter 12. He's talking about the gifts. Chapter 14 talks about the move of the Spirit. And then right in the middle, it's like, this, it's like you got two pieces of bread, but here's the meat. This is what holds all this together. And Paul says, amongst all that stuff, love 
love has got to be number one by far. Love. That's why the first commandment, Jesus said the first commandment is about love. It's all about love. He was, Paul pulls out of that and he says, without love, none of this matters. So love is not something easily beheld. And I'm going to suggest that we live in a secular society that love has become very twisted, tainted, and in most parts, not a true representation of what love is. We're going to get a pretty good picture of this because there's a number. Paul says, if we're going to understand it, I've got to give you a bunch of, I've got to throw a bunch of things at you here because all that together, because you can't get your arms around it, all of it together is love. Today, I want to talk about the language of love. Last week, we talked about nurturing love. Today, the language of love. Let's start it off. If you're taking notes, you, you can just begin to list number one, number two, number three. We're just going to follow them. Number one, verse four. What's the first one? Love is? Love is patient. Now, this is the... Pause with me here for a second and think about this. I know I'm going to make you... You're going to wish you had a coffee here. I'm, we're thinking. We're going to think this through. The, when you start something, it's important you, you hit the big ones first. Because you often, you can, people can lose interest by the time you get to the end. I learned that when you're in meetings. Make sure you put the big part of the agenda up in your beginning. Because if you have problems along the way, you, you lose them before you get to the big one. So don't wait to the end. So Paul does that. He does that in all his topics. And he made patience, number one. Now, I don't know about you. I've given it a bit of thought. Why didn't he say forgiveness? I think forgiveness is really, 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 really big. When it comes, like love has to know how to forgive, to walk in forgiveness. But he didn't start with love as forgiveness. I would think courtesy, kindness, you know, that kind of stuff would be like real love. When I think of love, I think of that kind of love. But the first one Paul uses is patience. Hmm. So let's explore that for just a moment. Patience, it's the premier of love. It's positioned to have it everything else. Paul is saying, if you can't get this one in place, the next one and the next one won't catch. So what's he talking about when he mentions patience? Well, we go back to the Greek. The Greek word used here for patience is a descriptive one. It figuratively means this, taking a long time to boil. Now think about a pot of boiling water. What factors determine the speed at which it boils? Having a big stove or a little stove, is that the factor that determines the speed of boiling? No. Uh, having a big pot or a little pot, does that determine the factor of the speed of it boiling? No. What's the determining factor of a pot boiling? The fire. Big fire, little fire. That's the determining factor. Now, we're talking patience here. Love is patient. Taking a long time to boil. Water boils quickly when the flame is high. Water boils slowly when the flame is low. Paul is saying, keep your flame low. Keep it low. Keep your flame low. 
Keep your boiling point low. Keep it down. Don't let it get up on you. Patience, remember again, the definition, we're, we're simply following the def definition, taking a long time to boil. Well, how does it take a long time to boil? The only way you're going to do it is you've got to keep the flame low. You've got to keep the flame low. So, to keep the flame, let's put it in practical. Love, the patience, patient love, is love that waits. Patience waits. It doesn't have to get ahead. It doesn't have to push its way through. Patience listens, listens, and is slow to boil. Now, it's not to be lost that one of the fruit of the Spirit, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, one of the fruit of the Spirit is patience. So not only is Paul saying the very first premier aspect of love in chapter 13 of Corinthians, Paul is saying in Galatians chapter 5, he says that actually an outpouring, an evidence, proof of the Spirit at work in you is patience. Proof is patience, if you're a patient person. So it's one of the fruit of the Spirit. Patient people are understanding people. Patient people are gracious people. Patient people are merciful people. Proverbs 14, 29 says, a patient man has great understanding. Could it be your impatience stems back to you lacking understanding? If you're impatient, you're not getting it all. If you're impatient, you're not listening. If you're impatient, you're not waiting. You're not dropping the flame in order to let it be a slow simmer. You're jumping ahead. So if you lack understanding, okay, there's an impatience involved. Proverbs 11, Proverbs 17 says, A man of understanding is even-tempered. So don't miss the connection between understanding and patience. Before you blow up, you need to listen up. Listen. Be, we need people, we need as Christians to be the most understanding. Doesn't mean the most tolerant. That's a difference. We need to understand. We need to be slow to speak and quick to listen. And listen. And keep listening. And dialoguing. And then listening. And receiving. And waiting. Not just only that. That's not enough. We're not saying that. But often we jump in there and we begin to let the flame rise. Author Dale Carnegie said, You can make more friends in two weeks by becoming a good listener than you can in two years trying to get other people interested in you. Hmm. Another quote was this, Big people monopolize listening. Small people monopolize talking. Patience. Love is patient. Now, I think if I want an example, God's the example on this one. God has been so patient for me. And I know he's been patient for some of you too. He's been so patient. I thank God for his patience and mercy because if, if he doled out justice every time something and I did something, I'd be long gone. But he's patient with me. Patient. And so therefore, if he's patient with me, can't I pass that same patience on to others? So before love can be anything else, the first one Paul says, love is patient. Then he comes to the next one. Love is kind. 
Have you ever wondered how many burdens Jesus is carrying for you today that you know nothing of? Kindness is, one of the pictures of kindness is coming alongside and carrying another's load. You come alongside, you're kind, you share, you share with them. A load that's unpleasant. You share their load. And I have to ask the question, I wonder how many burdens Jesus carries for me that I know nothing of. And I'm going to hazard quite a few. I wonder how many of insecurities I have that would manifest if he weren't carrying it for me right now. But he is. How do I know he's carrying? Where did I come up with that? Well, he said, Matthew eleven twenty eight. he said it. Come to me, he said. All you who labor and are heavy laden, heavy burdened, I will give you rest. Come to me, he says. I will give you rest. How? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. Take my yoke. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Now, you picture the yoke, a couple of oxen, and the yoke that two would get in there, and typically there's a strong one versus one not as strong, and uh, an experienced one, not so experienced. And so the inexperienced or the weaker one gets in there, and the stronger one carries the brunt of it. And often it's your load too, but they're carrying the brunt of that. And Jesus, that's the picture here, because they got the imagery very quick. He says, if you are not carrying it well, if it's heavy, if you feel downcast, heavy laden. There's a song that's been going through. It's an old song been going through my head. I heard it a week ago. Uh, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. I was thinking, that's, that, I've carried that over. Why, why are you downcast, O my soul? Because you're not putting your hope in him. Get into the yoke with him. I wonder how much he's carrying for me today already before I hit this point this morning that I know nothing of. I'm going to suggest quite a bit that I know nothing of. Sins, fears, shame, insecurities. He's carrying it. He's carrying it. You see, Jesus not only saved your soul, but he listens to you every day and feels your joy, embraces your pain, carries your burden daily. He carries our burden. He just doesn't save me. He walks with me and carries the heavy part of the load. Praise God. Praise God. When you think you can't carry it anymore, you're not. (laughs) Someone else is doing it. Don't give up. Don't be downcast, oh my soul. Put your hope in him. He's caring. And he is asking you to demonstrate the same kindness to others. When somebody is carrying a load, just don't do nothing. Carry it alongside with them. Carry each other's burdens. He talks of that again in Galatians. Carry one another's burdens. So, love is kind. Love is patient. Love is kind. What's the third one? Love does not envy. Kind of changes. It does a does not here. Now, envy never starts big. Envy always starts small and grows big very quick. I want to use an illustration of a flickering flame. Um, I thought about doing that actually with the illustration here. Then I thought, eh, you know. For the very reason I'm, I'm trying to get the point across is the reason I'm not going to do that illustration here. Uh, okay, I want you to think of a small flickering flame, like a striking of a match, a little lighter, okay? Small, little, innocent, flickering flame. Suppose you spotted a flame in your house. Not a blaze. Certainly not a fire. Just a tiny, glistening, little flame dancing on the hem of one of your curtains. 
Maybe that flame is just off the side by the electrical near your carpet. It's just a little flame. It's on your wood stove, but it's just it's fallen and it's on the floor just a few feet away. But it, it's nothing. It's so small you can barely see it. Can you imagine it with me? A little flame. Now, here's the question. What would you do in your home if that happened? Would you shrug your shoulders and say, a little fire hurts nothing? Would you do A little flame is innocent because it is innocent. There's, there's nothing threatening that little flame right there. It seems so is A little fire never hurt certainly the house. Now, we smile because we know that's not what you would do. What would you do? You wouldn't shrug your shoulders and walk away if there was a little flame, although it's very innocent, a little flame dancing at the bottom of your curtain. You wouldn't walk away from that. What would you do? You would immediately jump up. You would step on it. You would throw something on it. You would snuff it out as fast as you could. And here's the reason why. It's because you understand something about the growth pattern of fire. Follow with me. The growth pattern of fire is fire always starts small and consumes everything in its path and becomes big. That little flame at the bottom of the curtain left unattended will what? It'll burn your entire house down. And if somebody doesn't deal with your house, if you're in a lot of our neighborhoods here, it'll burn most of your neighborhood down too. Fire has a component to it. It will consume everything possible in its path. But it always, it never starts big and goes small. It always starts small and goes big. So the growth pattern of a fire is whatever is small must be dealt with in its infancy because in its adolescence it will consume everything in its path. Now let's take that because that's the picture we have here of envy. We pull that into envy. Likewise, the fire of our heart, a little bit of envy, a little bit of jealousy, pretty innocent when it starts. We just are distasteful towards a person. Somebody is just, there's an annoyance. It's a low grade. There's a bit of envy. We think it. We may not even say it yet, but it's circulating. It's beginning to flow through our thought pattern. Small, it's small, but under, you need to understand the growth patterns of envy. You need to understand the growth patterns of jealousy because it always starts small. So, Song of Solomon understood this in uh, Song of Solomon chapter 8, verse 6. It says, jealousy is as cruel as the grave. It flashes as flashes of fire. Now, the grave is pretty cruel. The grave is final there's there's no giving back at the grave and it says jealousy doesn't give back it's as cruel as the grave that's pretty harsh that's pretty harsh when we consider jealousy something now you know that's no big deal i can handle it i can handle it paul is equally aggressive when he says love does not envy jealousy and envy start small innocent enough but if we don't deal with the growth pattern, they will grow. And often fed through our past experience if we don't attend to it quickly. So jealousy will grab a hold of history and build something. 
Envy will grab something back in your past and will pull it in, and now the flame jumps exponentially. Psychologist Dr. Richard Dobbins states, your past experiences, both positive and negative, color the way you look at life and shape your expectations. Past experience, both positive and negative, shape what you expect. Mark Twain said it this way, a cat who sits on a hot stove will never sit on a hot stove again. He'll never sit on a cold stove either. From then on, that cat just won't like stoves. I'm tracking with this one. When there has been something that has imprinted itself upon you, all of a sudden you have behavior that you don't even know why that behavior is happening, but you just won't like anything related to it. Won't come anywhere near it. Won't come anywhere near it. Someone said, a man with a toothache cannot be in love. You think about that. What does that have to do with love? It means that the toothache disallows them to notice anything else but their toothache. Their pain is greater than anything they can do. So here's what happens. How can we not love? Paul is saying it can't have envy, it can't have jealousy. Here's what happens. When there's pain, you can't love. Just as if you got a toothache, you can't really love something because that toothache bugs you too much. All you can think about is that toothache. The pain becomes your obsession. Your pain becomes your obsession. Your envy, your jealousy, the little fire begins to go and it obsesses. And therefore, people around you are hurting and hurting and hurting because it has obsessed you. Wow. So love does not envy, but puts its trust in God. I trust you, Lord. I let it go. I trust you. I release it. I trust you. Let's keep going because it continues. He, he's building on this now. He's picking up speed, Paul, here. Number four, love does not boast. Love is not proud. I'm going to put those together. Love does not boast. Love is not proud. Um, I put a picture here of, uh, this is a liquid manure tank. <laughs> what does that have to do with love? Well, I'm going to tell you what it has to do with love. Lori knows what it has to do with love because she knows a little bit of the story. I was 17 years old. I was done school. I was between school. I would eventually go off to Bible college. I was making money. I got a full-time job. My first full-time job, I was 17. I worked for a place called Husky Farm Equipment. Husky Farm Equipment built these liquid manure tanks for pig farms. I was a welder. I was apprenticing welding. And... I was the last one hired of a, of a, I don't know how many were there. And I wasn't there very long. And I was just learning to, melt, to weld on a MIG welder. Uh, and, and they gave me a job. Uh, a, a used pig tank had come in. And the seam had let go on one of the welds. And it needed to be re-welded from the inside. From the inside. Anybody ever smelt pig manure? Come on, put your hands up if you've smelt it. Okay, if you've not smelt it. Take a drive sometime, go into the country, they'll be starting to spread it in the next week or two. Find a pig farm and just enjoy it. Just enjoy it. Okay, it is an aroma that stinks. My dad would tell me, we grew up in a dairy farm, it's a cow farm. I had, an, had a neighbor, a friend of mine, and he had a pig farm. All I had to do was stay, because I, I wouldn't even go into his pig barn. I, if I went over and he was doing stuff, I would stand up there, and just in his doorway, I could come home, 
be in the barn, walk by dad. He turned around. He says, you were at the pig farm, weren't you? It's just, how did it get on me? It's just a onto you. And then into your skin. It's a horrible smell. Now, the only thing worse than the smell of pig manure is burning pig manure. Pig manure on fire. So it takes you to, and if you don't trust me, just, you have to trust me on this one. So here was my job. I was weeks into this, and my job was to climb in the top of the tank with the MIG and with a flashlight. Now, you would chalk it because you can't see in the dark tank. You'd chalk it, then you'd have to weld it on the side. And then to light it and to begin to weld. And now, why? And, and the whole, and I learned something else. Pig manure ignites on fire. I had a fire going on inside the tank. They had to, they had to come in and get me out because, I didn't, because you couldn't see it with the mask. There's a whole fire going on inside. And I didn't realize pig manure actually burns. So I learned a lot that day. 17 years old. Just, boy, it was a real growing up moment. I was in the tank, and I was to, to re-secure a weld in the tank, and it was horrible. So here's the question. Here's the whole point of this illustration. Why did they have me go in that tank to weld it? Now, I'm going to get rid of some of the things you're thinking of. You probably think I was the best welder in the whole place. I wasn't. Trust me. I was the worst welder of all the men. I was the worst because they were just training me. Is it because I was the most flexible to get down and get back up again? No, it wasn't. There was a lot of good, healthy guys that worked there. Why did Wayne Lucas have to go in that day to a used pig manure tank and weld in the wake pig manure tank? You tell me. Why? Why do you think? I was the last one hired. We call that, I'm, thanks to the Norwegians, we call that the pecking order. You've heard of the pecking order? The Norwegians came up with the expression, the pecking order. I don't know who the Norwegians were way back when, but somewhere they got a bunch of birds, chickens together, and the Norwegians looked to see which ones were at the top of the pecking order and which ones were... Th I'm, I'm not telling you a fib here. Would your pastor fib? I'm telling This is what... Norwegians came up with the pecking order, and so here's what happened. The alpha bird did the most pecking, and the omega bird got the most pecks. Now, which would you rather be? You'd rather be at the top of the pecking order. Okay, they do the pecking. It's not pleasant being at the other end, being pecked. Now, here's the thing. We have pecking orders. We do. Just ask the person, and they're not pleasant. Just ask the person who has maybe a stuttering problem when they were in school, what it was like to be at the bottom, the omega of the pecking order, to be teased and laughed at. Just ask the person who couldn't keep up in school. Just ask the person who couldn't keep up in athletics. Just ask the person who, maybe their looks, you know, their, something about their looks, just turn something off. And we would call it bullying, but it's more than that. It's, it's they are at the bottom of a pecking order. For whatever reason, they're being pecked. Now, I, re, I use this illustration because it says, love does not boast, is not proud. It comes from that description of you do not peck. Love doesn't peck. Love doesn't seek to be the alpha and peck others. Love refuses to peck others. Okay. Um, so here's the point. It is for this reason God says that love has no place for pecking orders. Let me keep going because I'm going to build on this. Paul does. Next one. Love is not rude. Not rude. The New International says love does not dishonor 
others. Now, the Greek word for rude means shameful or disgraceful behavior. And one of the things that is disgraceful and shameful is when it comes to conversation, love, rudeness is where you dominate a conversation. He says, don't dominate it. Love does not pretend to hear, but really isn't listening. No, listen. Love does not bark out orders. Instead, here, love needs to be courteous. Love is not rude. It needs to be courteous. Jesus was courteous. I mean, if anybody had a right to judge, Jesus did. If anybody had a right to barge in and interrupt, Jesus did, but he didn't. Matter of fact, we see in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And when you answer, he awaits your invitation to cross your threshold. That's love. Jesus was not rude. Jesus listened. Jesus waits for the invitation. He does not force himself. He waits for your invitation. Might I say that's a good invitation to give. Love is not self-seeking. Self-seeking. Selfishness is fatal. James 3.16 When people... Whenever people are jealous or selfish, they cause trouble and do all sorts of cruel things. Defined, selfishness. Selfishness is an obsession with self that excludes others, often hurting everyone. So it's not saying here when it says love is not self-seeking. Here's what it's not saying. It's not saying that you shouldn't desire success. You should. It's not saying that you shouldn't seek to achieve. You should seek to achieve. You need to seek to achieve. I think followers of Jesus should be some of the best achievers around. I believe followers of Jesus need to be some of the best successful people around. I really do. That you give all in all. You do your best in what you're given. I believe that that's our obligation as followers of Jesus. It does not mean that you just are passive. But what it does mean is when you look after your personal interests, I mean, that's proper life management. But don't do it at the exclusion of someone else. The adverb, verse 4, says, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest. So yes, achieve, but bring people with you. Succeed. Make others around you succeed too. Yes, go for the gold, but help others go for the gold too. That's what it's saying. Self-seeking is not that you shouldn't try your best. Self-seeking is that you do not step on anyone to get there. So that whole thing where you step on, you know, you're working your way up the ladder, but you're stepping on others' hands going on the ladder. No, that's not love. Paul's saying that should not be of the Christians. That's not love. So if you desire success, fine. Just don't hurt others who are achieving success. You wish to look good? Yeah, look good. But just don't make others look bad. Don't make others look bad. Love isn't selfish. Let's go to the next one. Love is not easily angered. Now, I looked up the first time anger is mentioned in the Bible. It's mentioned in chapter 4 of Genesis. First time the word occurs. Chapter 4 is the story of Cain and Abel, two brothers. And in that story, uh, Cain became very angry toward his brother Abel. Then, if you look up, if you had a concordance, you have to have an exhaustive concordance, 
400 more times anger is mentioned throughout the Bible. Started in chapter 4 and 400 more times anger. I mean, there's a lot of angry people in the Bible. When anger pulls up to the curb, do you know who is almost always in the front seat with anger? Is rejection. They ride around a lot together. Anger and rejection are often in the same sentence. I mean, who would have guessed? Uh, we can look at some scriptures and we can see that so consistently. I'm just going to pull some off that came to my mind. Jacob, Genesis 25. Jacob had many sons. And Jacob gave special attention to one of his sons. His name was Joseph. And the other sons felt rejected. And because they felt rejected, they became angry. It says the brothers were very angry. From what? Rejection. Again, remember, anger and rejection will ride around together. King Saul. King Saul was rejected by his people. We see it in Samuel. And when the Israelites were choosing heroes, they chose the fair-haired David over the prestigious king. And the result we read in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 7, it says, And the women sang as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Now, here's the next few words. Then Saul became very angry. Where did that come from? Felt rejected. Rejected. David. So David had to deal with this himself. Now David's the king. David you know, wanted God to be pleased. And so David was bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem to be in the temple. And as he's bringing it in, he's doing all this so he can he, God, be blessed by God. As he's doing it, he didn't do it exactly the way God asked him to. And somebody reached out and grabbed a hold of the Ark and got struck down by God instantaneously and died. And we read of this in 2 Samuel 6, 8, it says, God smote him, the person who reached out and touched the ark, and he died. Verse 7, listen, David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against this person. So what happened? This outburst, that meant God rejected David. Now David's angry. Anger. Jonah, an entire book's written over Jonah. And Jonah, was, God was saying, listen, uh, I want to do this for the city over here. And Jonah says, no, here's what's going to happen. I'm not going to be, have anything to do with this. And then he felt rejected. And out of that, Jonah became, he's so angry, he sat down, he pouted and the whole thing. His anger came out of rejection. You can follow it over and over again. If rejection from people makes us angry, then how do we feel when we feel rejected by God? It's huge. And if rejection causes anger, then what's going to be the antidote for it? So there's a good question. That has to be our question. So if rejection causes anger, if I begin to feel rejected and it brings anger, the antidote of rejection, could it be one of them anyway? Acceptance? So we need to take a strong antidote of acceptance to counter rejection. Listen, you and I have no power to keep people from rejecting us. I wish I could say I could keep people from rejecting you and people from rejecting me. I have no power over that. You will be rejected. I will be rejected. I cannot control that. But I can keep rejection from enraging me. If I feel rejected, my next thing is angry and enragement. 
Rejection is a part of life. We will all face rejection. And we will face it over and over right up to the end. But we can keep rejection from enraging us by acceptance. Letting Christ, his acceptance of us, compensate for others' rejections. So, there's your task. If this is an area where anger, you know, you struggle with this, then you've got to get rejection under control, get rejection under control, you've got to bring acceptance in. And to do that, that's an active part. It won't just happen. An active part on your behalf. And here's one way. I just thought, okay, Wayne, help him, help him start this out. Ephesians chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. Here's some homework. If you want to really get a good self-dose of acceptance, I invite you before today's done, May 1, before today's done, go to Ephesians chapter 1 and take your time. And get a, a, you know, I encourage you a version, a Bible version that's easy to understand, a paraphrase perhaps. And go through chapter 1 of Ephesians and take your time. It'll tell you a lot about how God thinks about you and it just makes you feel good. And then tomorrow, go to chapter 2. Take your time though. Read it once, twice. Take your time. Write some thoughts down. And then on Tuesday, go to chapter 3. And then on Wednesday, come back to chapter 1 again. And do that for the next two to three weeks. If you did it every day for the next two to three weeks, I'm just hazarding a general idea. You will discover it'll build you up in how God sees you. You need to do that so that you offset rejection. Offset rejection. And then tell me how God feels about you. Next one. Keep Love keeps no records of wrong. You know, Jesus was killed in the hearts of the people long before they killed him on the cross. Think about that one. He was killed in their hearts before they killed him on a cross. Let me follow through with that thought. Today's thoughts are tomorrow's actions. Actions just don't happen. They started with a thought that was left unattended to and it turned into action that's why Paul implores love keeps no records get rid of the records of wrongs Paul would say it another way in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 5 I like this capture every thought make it give up I like that capture every thought here's a thought and make it give up I won't keep you you, you can't stay you can't stay go 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 make it give up Make it give up and obey Christ. So you can't just make it give up without filling it again. Fill it with the obedience of Christ. Why Paul implores us, love keeps no records of wrongs. So how do you capture a thought? Well, I'm going to encourage you. If you want to capture a thought, make it give up, and then you bring your thoughts into obedience of Christ. What's the obedience of Christ? Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, finally, church, he says, whatever's true, Whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's admirable, if anything is excellent, praiseworthy, those are the obedient thoughts of Christ. Those are what you want in your mind. We realize that the battle is won between your ears long before it's demonstrated out of your mouth and in actions. So capture it in your thoughts. And bring it into obedience of Christ. Let me give another illustration. Let's suppose you lived in an apartment. Okay, just follow with me. You live in an apartment, a high-rise apartment. 
And on your windowsill of your room, every morning when you wake up, somebody places a solitary, a solitary daisy. One daisy. And so let's say here we are, May 1st. Today, we all, if we, we all have our daisy. We, we, we come, we get out, we have our daisy. We start every day with a daisy. Maybe we pin it to our lapel. Now, since you only have one plant, you want to keep that daisy alive all day long. But as soon as you step out your door, people start picking the petals off your daisy. You get down onto the street level, you get in your car, and somebody cuts you off. Boom, a pedal comes off. You go to get park at your parking place at your workplace, and somebody's taking your parking place. Boom, another pedal comes off, that daisy. Somebody gets a promotion over you today, pedal comes off. You're blamed for a bad report, pedal comes off. Somebody takes a seat in the cafeteria, pedal comes off. And now you're down to one or two petals of your daisy. In your days, you got a lot more day left. And now you're dearly aggravated. You are protecting. You are one petal away from blowing up. Dare somebody gets near your last petal. Okay? Now, how can we... So therefore, again, we're coming back to this whole principle here, keeping no records of wrong. So how do we get to the place? How do we get to the place where we have the thoughts of Christ over the thoughts that will take us down. How do we get to that place? You're down, Daisy, you're almost ready to lose it and you're, you're gonna lose all capturing of the good things. Well, here's what you do. Let's say, let's, let's repaint the picture now. Let's say you get up this morning, but somebody, when you stepped out of your bedroom, your entire living room is full of daisies. Dozens and dozens and dozens of, hundreds of daisies everywhere. Not just dying daisies. These are healthy daisies. These are good daisies. You have daisies all over the place. Now, when you step out of your apartment today, no matter what mess is in this world that all of us are going to face, no matter what mess is in this world, you can face it. Why? Because you've got a ton of daisies. Now, I, I made this point. We have to put on Christ a lot <laughs> because the world will pick the daisies off of you and your own brain will pick them off too. And then we run out partway through the day. How do we stand against that? How do, this is love. You gotta put the love of Christ. You gotta know who I am in Christ. Let that just permeate you, who I am in Christ. So that's why when we start mornings, I just don't do it for an exercise before you all show up with worship. We get together, we begin to pray in the spirit, pray in the understanding. We begin to worship in the spirit, worship in the understanding. We begin to build ourselves up in Christ. Who am I in Jesus? Because whatever happens, if we have blowouts left and right on a Sunday morning, and sometimes that happens, we've got a whole room full of daisies. We know God loves us and he is for us. Who can be against us? But if you've only got one little bit, if you've hardly taken any upon yourself, you will always be running out. You see this? And then love does not manifest in you. You want love to manifest? Let him fill your apartment every day with daisies because he does and he will. Love keeps no records of wrong. God will load your world with flowers, hand delivered to your door every day. Take them, and when wrongdoing comes, you'll never be left short-pedaled. Praise God. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. 
Very simply said, love never celebrates another's misfortune. Let me bring it to conclusion. Verse 7. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Now tell me what's in common with all those. Always. The word always is the one we're going to focus on here. Always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. He just ran, he put those through, but he made a common denominator. The word always comes from a Greek word, panta. That panta is where we get our word pantry. So I want you to follow with me here. So God views love like mom views the pantry. Now how does mom view the pantry? Keep it full. It's not complicated. Keep the pantry full. That's where that comes from. Always Always full for protection. Always full in trust. Always full in hopes. Always full for persevering. Keep the pantry full. And when we love someone, we need to take the entire package. The pantry is not simply filled with, you know, um, whatever. I don't know what kids eat today for, for cereal that may be not healthy. But I just pick one cereal box that maybe is not horribly healthy for you. And the entire pantry, all that cereal box. Mom won't do that to you. It's important to have the pantry full of variety. So it's a healthy diet for the family. That's the picture here. The pantry kept full, the whole package, no picking and choosing, no large helpings of the good and passing on the bad over here. Love is a package deal. That's why Paul said it this way. Paul said love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always. All the pantry, all the pantry, he said. Keep it full. You and I need to today to demonstrate this love language now to others. And I think today now more than ever, we need to demonstrate this love so that people will not become overwhelmed by life's challenges. I want to close with an illustration because so many people are, and even here today, I'm going to suggest possibly some of you have been overcome with life's challenges. It's just overwhelming. And you probably could properly say, if you knew what I had to go through, you would understand. And it's probably true. You would get it. It's beyond, beyond what I can handle. And there's a lot of that around us. That's why we got to grow in this love. We've got to allow this to flow. And so I'm going to use an illustration. If, you, if I took you back to the early days of baseball, if I could take you back to 1917, a rookie Major League Baseball player was facing the renowned Walter Johnson. Here's a picture of Walter Johnson. Walter Johnson was renowned. He's best pitcher for a period of time. And so here's what happened. A story took place. So this rookie, rookie, it's his first year, young guy. He's facing the veteran best pitcher in the league, Walter Johnson. First time he comes up to bat when Johnson was in his prime. And this rookie batter took two quick strikes from him. And then it's reported he turned around and walked off. Two strikes. Now, you know baseball. You have to have three before you're in. He began to walk off with two strikes. The umpire called out after him, where are you going? That's only two strikes. In which the rookie defeatedly replied, you can keep the third strike. I've seen enough. 
And I want to suggest life is causing too many people early to walk off the mound. I've seen enough. You can keep it. I've seen enough. Enough, enough, enough. And beloved, today, there's a lot of I've seen enough. And we've given up on some things. And church, this is where the body of Christ is called. That love, love is one of the most powerful things that can break through that. This kind of love. Contrary to popular belief, there is no such thing as self-made men and women. No such thing. When you hear it, don't believe it. What I can accomplish by myself is nothing compared to my potential when working with others. Anybody worth their weight in their value will always recognize I am where I am because others helped me. You've got to recognize that. And so... What I can accomplish by myself is nothing compared to my potential when working with others. Doing life together with other people brings true contentment. So we're going to read as we close here today, 1 Corinthians 13 again. We're going to put our names again at the front of it like you did before. But now, would you really, really maybe mean it? Now when we read it, would you really let your heart attitude grab a hold of these? Now when we say these, would you declare it before God with conviction? Let's declare it from our hearts when we begin to say these together. Can we do that? 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. Again, put your name at the beginning of it. I'm going to put my name. Let's say it out loud. Everybody together. Wayne is patient. Wayne is kind. Wayne does not envy. Wayne does not boast. Wayne is not proud. Wayne is not rude. Wayne is not self-seeking. Wayne is not easily angered. Wayne keeps no records of wrongs. Wayne does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Wayne always protects. Wayne always trusts. Wayne always hopes. Wayne always perveres. 1 John 4.19 says we can love others because Jesus first loved us. Thanks for listening to the Aurora Cornerstone podcast. Remember to subscribe. For more information about our church and our ministries, visit auroracornerstone.ca.